The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. My name is Justin Robert Young. If I sound different, it's because I am now without all of my regular equipment. So while technically I'm in the same room that I have recorded oh so many of these podcasts, while technically my feet tread the same floorboards where I normally stand, this is not my normal setup. We, we, we've got our, our, our traveling rig here to do the next few episodes. We're, we're, we're going to have uh, some special treats coming up next week when I'm driving across the country. Uh, obviously, any if, if any news breaks, I'll be able to to add to it, but... Uh, we are, we are going to have some, some fun treats for you next Wednesday and next Friday, but this week, uh, uh, we will have the normal format. It'll just sound a little bit different. I want to begin this podcast by centering the victims that died in Boulder, Colorado on Monday, a mass shooting. Uh, there's no greater pain than losing a family member. And I would like to just make sure that the conversation is is there with their pain. Uh, uh, as per usual on this show, uh, I will not be talking about the shooter. I will not be naming the shooter's name. And we're going to move on from there because I have no interest in that discourse. One other note here before we get going, Axios reporting today that the Biden administration will not rely on any Republican votes up through the midterms. They didn't say as much, but that's basically what I'm reading. Infrastructure and uh, uh, any other priorities will be done via reconciliation. There might be a few super, uh, you know, non-controversial things that get Republican votes, but anything that that the Democrats want to do, they are going to do without any Republican help. Now, this cements the legacy of what I believe are the two most powerful people in Washington right now, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. If you're not going to rely on Republicans, then you're going to have to rely on them they are going to be the marching orders that are handed out for everybody else to follow. Infrastructure looks like it's next. It's always the 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 Kobayashi Maru of legislative goals, right? Because you you think you think it's perfect. Who doesn't need to fix a bridge? 
Who doesn't need to fill potholes? It's like the parody of what a politician should do. And yet, and yet the devil's in the details. And when you're not talking about a few million, you're not talking about a few hundred million, you're talking about multi-trillions of dollars. And if the Democrats are in charge, then that means there's going to be environmental stuff. And there's going to be union requirements. And there's going to be a bunch of other uh, things that'll be stapled along with it. Then you have the dual problem of it being unsexy, specifically when we have what's happening on the border, specifically when we have what just happened on Monday with a shooting. They're not going to focus on either of those things. Instead, they're going to talk about necessary, but not in our minds, immediately urgent infrastructure needs without any of the bipartisan win that you could otherwise get. So we'll see. That That is next on the agenda. We're not going to talk any more about that, though. On this episode of the program, we are going to discuss a very crucial question. Should you trust the new AstraZeneca vaccine in light of the fact that the National Institute of Health just called them on the carpet about possibly falsifying their phase three trial data? Also, Andrew Cuomo has one hot summer to save his political life. We discuss what you can expect the governor of New York to try to do. Also, more Cuomo dialogue. We delve in to one of the strangest phenomenons of 2020, and that was the deification of Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo sexuality running wild. What has that process taught us about hero worship in the world of politics? We are joined by Rob Trzinski of The Bulwark. Early this morning, the National Institutes of Health released a statement saying that it is concerned that AstraZeneca may have included outdated information on its large-scale COVID vaccine trial. This is another setback. Those are the sounds of a story that you're probably going to hear a little bit about this week, that AstraZeneca included, quote, outdated information of its coronavirus vaccine trial data that provided a, quote-unquote, incomplete view of its efficacy data according to the national institute of health the trial data that they reported on monday which showed a 70 percent efficacy rate is not what they believe the real number is quote dr fauci the issue is that the dsmb had a straightforward and very simple problem they had data that they know the company had. When they saw the press release, they said, wait a minute, 
The data in the press release does not reflect the most recent data that we know you have. He went on to say that the data board felt that the, that uh, might the data board felt that what AstraZeneca released might in fact be misleading a bit and wanted to straighten it out. Of all the vaccines that have come out, AstraZeneca is by far the most controversial. Partly for things inside their control and partly for things outside of their control. Outside of their control was the fact that they were the first major vaccine trial to publicly pause because one of their people in their study, we don't need, I, I don't think to this day, we still don't know whether or not the person was getting the vaccine or not, got sick. So they had to pause the trial. They had to pause uh, uh, test vaccinating people just to make sure that there was no problem. And it turns out there wasn't any problem. But then there's some stuff that was in their control. And this is an example of it. Because AstraZeneca, which is developing this vaccine in coordination with Oxford University has had a, shall we say, data reporting problem. And I don't mean that in, in any way that they are being untruthful. No, I, I mean that on the level that for whatever reason, they've now been called out twice for confusing reports of their data. The first one came in late November 2020 when they released a report saying that they were effective on three different levels, an overall efficacy of 70%, a lower one of 62%, and a high efficacy level of 90%. Okay, if you're just a regular old Joe like we are, what in the hot ham water is that supposed to mean, AZ? What's that supposed to mean? 62%, 70%, 90%. Which one is it? And most importantly, considering the fact that these numbers are about symptomatic coronavirus uh, uh, contraction, what does it really mean for us as a populace? If I take this vaccine, can I go out this summer? You know, I, I, I got my own questions about exactly how much we need to be pumping up these efficacy numbers beyond, to me, what is the only important one. And that is 100% on each and every one of these vaccines, 100% preventing hospitalization and death. That's what I care about. To me, that's that's the only number we need to be getting out of the, the getting getting out the door here. The, the the Justin R. Young school of thought in terms of COVID shots equal body shots means the one number we care about is a hundo. And AstraZeneca is that. But even then, if efficacy of symptomatic contraction is its own confusion then the three-headed monster that AstraZeneca offered the world in late November only make, makes things more muddled. I'll explain what they meant here. 
about 3,000 of their participants were given the half a half dose of the vaccine and then a full dose four weeks later. This regime appeared to provide the most protection in the trial. That's the 90% number, that they got a half dose, then a full dose. In the largest group of 9,000 volunteers who were given two full doses four weeks apart, the efficacy was 62%. They then say that if you average out the 90% and the 62%, that's where you get the 70%. And I'm sure that there are some scientists and SciComm professionals that are listening to me that probably have eagerly raised one finger in the air because they have some questions and possibly some notes. So let's try to address them. If you are separating out a 3,000-person sample and a 9,000-person sample, then you better make sure that they are statistically accurate, i.e., They have the same kind of comorbidities. They are of the same age, possibly even demographically stratted out. So you are adjusting for race and income. And we don't know whether or not AstraZeneca did that. In fact, they got some criticism for the fact that they had more young people in that half-dose, full-dose, 3,000-person set that got them the highest percentage. But let me say, with all this being out there, with Dr. Fauci being mad at AstraZeneca, with AstraZeneca having already done this once before, here's why you should trust this vaccine. If you are listening to me in Europe right now, or you are listening to me in America when and if, AstraZeneca gets approved here. And it's another number that I hope is at the top of your mind. 17 million and counting. That's the amount of people in Europe, and specifically the United Kingdom, that have gotten the AstraZeneca vaccine. Since... The UK approved the AstraZeneca vaccine. And by the way, that happened only six days. (laughs) Six days after there were questions about that study with the 3,000 versus the 5,000 with the 70% and the 90% and and the 62%. Six days after that, the UK said, yep, good to go. Shots in arms or jabs in arms. You fancy devils. Since that day, Since the UK began vaccinating, they have stood apart from their European colleagues in totally avoiding another wave of this virus. Look up these numbers yourself. Do yourself a favor. Go to Worldometer's coronavirus and then compare new cases and active cases over the last month in Italy, Germany, France, and Spain versus the United Kingdom. In those mainland European countries which have done a far poorer job in their ability to vaccinate their public, they're going through another wave right now because of variants, including the UK variant, which 
is oddly named considering it is not impacting on the same level the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, the newly Brexited UK has a steady decline. They began vaccinating as fast as possible. They vaccinated through the winter uh the, the winter wave. And now it looks like they're on an actual pathway out of this hellhole. Why should you trust the AstraZeneca vaccine? Why? Because it's working. It's working where it needs to work. The AZ vaccine in the UK is their lead dog. And if it's good enough for them and it's working there and it doesn't have the same kind of side effects that stopped its rollout in Europe briefly last week, then I think it's safe for you. Now let's hope that AstraZeneca does get their bookkeeping right because that is bad. And I'm glad that the National Institute of Health is calling them on the carpet for that because you need to get the right amount of data here, especially if we are working in a world where we need absolute transparency when it comes to our science. I do hope they get their numbers right. And I do hope that it gets approved here in the U.S. in the next few weeks, specifically since states are opening up uh, their vaccination registration for all who want it. Help. Texas just announced that that they're going to be open for business before I even set foot in that state. You know, I'm going to be rolling in on April 2nd. March 29th is when they are opening up registration to any and all who would like their shot. But considering that we do leave, live in a hyper-polarized country, I've got another idea that we can add to my suite of COVID shots equal body shots brand of messaging. Let's use some of this culture war stuff to our advantage, huh? AstraZeneca, the shot that Dr. Fauci doesn't want you to take. Oh, that know-it-all in his glasses going on all these big lib television shows telling you what you can or can't do. Roll it up real tight and jab it in your arm. The AstraZeneca vaccine is above your authority, Fauci. There ain't nothing you can do about it. I'm getting vaccinated, and that's the bottom line, because AstraZeneca said so. Dateline Albany from Politico. New York lawmakers will take months to investigate the allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo before deciding whether to bring articles of impeachment against the three-term governor. This according to State Assembly Judiciary Chair Charles Levine appearing uh, yesterday at the first formal meeting to discuss the inquiry and to promise due process. This, of course, is in tandem with an investigation by the Attorney General of the state of New York. Which means, practically, and you guys know that, that this is a show that is about the practicality 
of politics. We are about the who will win and why. Who will survive? Save your moralizing for another podcast because this is about what will happen, not what should happen. And if we're going to talk about what will happen, then we have to understand the playing field. And here's what it is for Cuomo as I see it. He's got one crazy summer to save his skin. I don't think either of these investigations are going to be in before July 4th, let's say. Labor Day, quite possibly. At which point, the threat of the immediate temperature getting so hot that Cuomo needs to walk away himself will have receded. I believe it already has. But he still, if he is going to be a craven politician who wants to run for a fourth term as governor of New York, well, he's got to be the best governor ever. Now, doesn't he? Doesn't he? I can't be the only one from a broken home who knew that their dad's best behavior came when he screwed up the most, right? (laughs) That was when you always got to go to the arcade. That was when he always cooked dinner for mom. This is Cuomo's time. I joked around about uh, uh, my current governor and uh, Gavin Newsom, who now is facing a recall. And oddly enough, we're only a couple days away from Disneyland opening. Oh, what was that about uh, sporting events? No, 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 no. Now it's time to go play ball. You go see a baseball game, kids. Oh, the Lakers are going to be in the playoffs? Maybe even the Warriors, too? Wow, we should definitely have fans in stands for that one. I mean, hell, I had the Clippers in. I'm Gavin Newsom. I'm just in a really good mood. Remember that I have a recall election coming up in the next couple months, so just go ahead and vote no on that one. But anyway, Six Flags is open! Six Flags, Six Flags, Six Flags! Do me a favor, don't yell on the roller coasters. That's an actual thing. I'm not joking about that. That's an actual part of them reopening it, which is just so funny. But I was thinking about Cuomo. I was thinking about Cuomo. How is he going to maximize his summer? I love making these predictions because when they come true, it is always the most fun. So, I was thinking about little things, right? Like, what is a New York State summer? What happens? Like, uh, 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 for those of you who have never been around New York State, the city, New York City is hot as hell. Almost unbearable during the summer. It's so hot. People like to get out of the city, uh, the city a little bit. They like to go to upstate. They like to go to the Catskills. And, and let me tell you this. Upstate New York, And I'm talking about Syracuse. I'm talking about Rochester. I'm talking about Albany. As miserable as they are in the winter. And trust me, they are like uh, put you in a, a horrendous, awful, depressive state level of bad. As bad as they are, the summers are almost equally gorgeous. 
They're immaculate. They're amazing. So from the realistic to the sublime, what would Cuomo do? Maybe put in a bigger budget for the state fair. Maybe book the biggest acts that this, the New York State Fair that happens in Syracuse has ever seen in their entire lives. I mean, hell, let's think a little bit bigger. Let's conscript Billy Joel to play a concert outdoors in every New York City that has a 5,000 or more population. Let's get everybody in that New York state of mind. This is brought to you by Governor Cuomo. I tossed it out to my Discord, and this is what they had. How about $1,000 for every resident under $100,000 in New York State? Nothing makes people like you like free money, huh? Although, I don't know. I, I don't know how much that would have a residence now. Now that people have gotten... You know, two stimmy checks, three stimmy checks from uh, from 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 Papa's Papa from 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 the federal government. I mean, look, a thousand dollars would always be a thousand dollars. I'm sure people would like it, but would it hit the same as that first stimmy check did? I don't know. Still, cash is king. How about this? What if Cuomo? all of a sudden makes it his number one priority to get enough money to the MTA to fix the subway. The biggest, most massive subway overhaul that we have ever seen in New York State, and it's Cuomo all over it. He's like, look, I'm getting back to the job of governing. I don't know if I do a good, good Cuomo. I'm getting back to the job of doing a, I am, I am, Andrew Cuomo, I can't do a Cuomo. I, I, I guess it, it's a little, I, I, like he's a little raspy, a little raspy. He has a, a tone of voice that's always condescending. Anyway, he, he, he says I'm getting back to the, the, the job of government. And I'm going to do what they say couldn't be done. I'm going to make sure that the subway is fixed. We got some other stuff. Uh, building an extra room on every, <laughs> on every New York City apartment. There's one. Oh, here's a great one. Uh, he facilitates the sale of James Dolan of the Knicks. He gets James Dolan to sell the Knicks. Oh, if he brokered that. If he brokered that, that would be huge. Cuomo, I don't know why I'm helping Governor Cuomo. I don't know why I'm helping Governor Cuomo. All these are free. All these are free for you. I feel like that would be it. That would be it. I am serious about this, though. I do think that this we are about to see, specifically with Gavin specifically with Cuomo, it's time for the sun to come out. They have shown the moon. Now it is the sun. We are going to see very, very permissive government in California and New York through 
this summer. Something that will not ever stop is my commitment to the $3 Club. Ah, yes, the $3 Club. The folks on our Patreon who make sure that they keep this entire operation humming. We're packing everything up into our little caravan. We are taking this circus train south to the Lone Star State of Texas, and it's all thanks to you guys. On Monday's edition of the $3 Club PX3 Extra, they got a story I can't even talk about here. I don't even know if I can talk about it. But you will hear my thoughts on video of an aide to a member of the Australian Parliament who took a video himself. I, I can't even say it. I can't even say what he's doing. We, 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 we've tried to clean this up. We want to make this family friendly. I can't even tell you what he's doing. Or where it lands. Oh, God. It's just disgusting. Anyway, uh, uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the show. It's so easy. Just go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Make sure that you get 104 bonus podcasts a year. 104 bonus podcasts a year. That's a lot of podcasts. That's a lot of stuff that you get for the low, low price of $3 on TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head over there right now. Thank you guys so much. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I heard, though, that you had a crush on our boyfriend, Andrew Cuomo. Dude, I, I, everyone does, right? I think he's fantastic. You call yourself a Cuomo-sexual, and I, I, I agree with you. I feel like I'm a Cuomo-sexual, too. It genuinely has been very inspiring and, and refreshing to see uh, a leader like Cuomo. That is the sound of the fawning over Andrew Cuomo one year ago. Obviously, the tune has changed a bit since then, but why did we get to the point where he was, at least in the minds of many, qualified to write a book about how amazing his job handling COVID was and ready to take the leap into federal politics and possibly the White House? Corrosive hero worship is the answer. And to explore this phenomenon politics-wide... We welcome Rob Trzinski. He's a writer for The Bulwark, as well as his own newsletter, The Trzinski Letter, and he's here now. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me on. We are coming up on the year anniversary, and I'm going to have to find it. Uh, but amidst the, the darkest days of the beginning of the pandemic, 
I made a comment that got me a lot of pushback from my audience, and that was, by the numbers, Andrew Cuomo was doing the worst job of any governor during the pandemic. And I felt that that was a fairly uncontroversial statement because when you look at the numbers that mattered, which were deaths, uh, uh, he was doing the worst. And you can... Criticize Brian Kemp. You can criticize Ron DeSantis. You can even criticize other blue governors like Gretchen Whitmer and 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 Gavin Newsom. At that time, one person unfortunately held the distinction of being the worst. That was him. Maybe at some point, it would not be him. Uh, I feel like I this is an opinion that has aged like a fine wine. Uh, now I've I've gotten <laughs> apologies. From people about uh, uh, my take that I didn't think Andrew Cuomo was doing the greatest job on the planet because he was uh, able to talk uh, uh, calmly on television. Uh, although, you know, that is that is enough of a skill. But you wrote, I think, a, a, a scathing and blistering piece, not only about Andrew Cuomo's job, but also the problem with the fawning attention that was put on him from the beginning of the pandemic. So let's start there. Uh, where is our, where, where, where does the original sin of the cult of Andrew Cuomo begin? <laughs> well, all right. So I, I did, I did want to address one thing that early on by the numbers, you know, it was kind of hard to say, okay, New York was doing the worst, but yeah. it was also got hit the first. You know, they were the they were the first wave of the first wave. So you could say, okay, you know, it came over from you know by China, it came to Europe, and from Europe, it came to New York. So fine, but you know, we also know now that the he made this disastrous decision to say, hey, you know, all these people coming out of the hospitals with COVID, we're going to make the nursing homes take them back and and mix them in and mingle them in amongst a high risk population, and that was a major contributor. Oh yeah, and and, and you want to? Yeah, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to revisit this point. Uh, Yes, that and for everybody who's like, okay, well, it got there first. Uh, Actually, it got to California before that, and it also got to Seattle before that, and and Seattle and California didn't quite have the same problems. It's like, oh, well, that's because New York City has the largest density. Wow. I'm really glad that everybody found that out in March of 2020. You would think (laughs) that if you were the governor of that state and you would have to have a functional relationship with the mayor of that city so it doesn't sneak up on you that, shocker, you have a city with 9 million people in it. This should be something that you should be on higher alert and a more functional government because you are on alert for that fact. Right. Well, so the thing is, though, to get to your point, though, why did everybody build up yes. Andrew Cuomo as such a big hero? Thank you I mean, for tolerating downfall, me getting my take Downfall wouldn't be so bad if he hadn't been, <laughs> you know, I mean, embarrassing stuff like people describing themselves as Cuomo sexual, which yes. is just, you know, I just want to, you know, can you die from cringing? I, I don't know. And it was bad then. Uh, but, it was bad then, Rob. It was, it was, yeah. it was, it was awful then when everybody, when you know, people's wine moms are just on their IG stories making kissy faces at the television, uh, uh, that was that was then. Now as he's as he's engulfed in in in, in one sexual uh, assault scandal after another, <laughs> it, it, it takes on another level. It takes a whole lot. But the thing is that the media needed an anti-Trump. They needed somebody yeah. to be a foil to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did a really bad job of managing the pandemic. Uh, he was the one sort of in denial about the whole thing. And, you know, his biggest concern for the first month or so was, oh, this will make the stock market go down and will hurt my reelection chances. 
So, you know, Donald Trump was doing a terrible job, but the media needed somebody to be, you know, they always want to have their narrative. And if it can be a, a partisan narrative, one that promotes their side of the latest partisan battles, so much the better. So in their partisan narrative, they needed, we need a blue state governor who's going to be a total contrast to Donald Trump, who's going to show people how it really ought to be done. And like you said, Andrew Cuomo was able, in contrast to the president to some extent, uh, was able to get in front of a camera and talk calmly and yeah. even you know, make a show of empathy. I think we know from by now that empathy is probably not genuine on his part, but you know, it doesn't come to him naturally. But he was able to make, you know, what they say about politics, uh, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that he was able to seem sincere and empathetic and calm and rational and talk about the, you know, the, make it look as if he cared about the science. We now know that he wasn't always paying attention to the science. Uh, He had some quote recently about how, you know, uh, doing this sort of contemptuous talk about the so-called experts, and I don't really listen to them because they don't know what they're doing, which is just right out of Donald Trump's playbook. So he wasn't even better on that. And that's what really strikes me is that they they anointed him as the sort of designated official anti-Trump. And he turns out to have uh, pretty much all of the same basic fundamental character flaws that Trump has. You know, he's more concerned about how the pandemic makes him look than about the results. He's more concerned about the politics. He's combative. He picks unnecessary fights. He turns out to have a problem with um, how he deals Boundaries. with women. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. Just you tick everything. You know, he, he has he's contemptuous of experts. Everything down the line, uh, everything that that people accuse Donald Trump of, he is also guilty of. And I think that's really instructive that you can go look for, okay, here's the anti-Trump, and he turns out to be pretty much the same. And my view is maybe this says something about universally about looking for politicians as saviors. I want to get to that. Uh, but but first, I want to do one of my favorite things whenever we get into this kind of conversation, and that is define the they. When we say that they want to anoint him, who are we talking about specifically? Because I I I, I got a list, but I, but I kind of want to uh, match it with yours here. I I don't have a comprehensive list, but there's a lot of really embarrassing stuff out there. I mean, it, it's sort of the the left of center, the mainstream and left of center big media outlets. So you know CNN, yeah, and um, oh, there's some you know Jennifer Rubin uh, who is. Oh, activist, activist Twitter, like all, all of activist Twitter. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So sort of, I mean, you know, when you think about the, I I talk about the, the mainstream media has this reputation for being sort of a volunteer organ of the democratic party establishment. And that, you know, they they deserve, they earn that reputation. It's exaggerated sometimes, but they really did earn that reputation. They have a tendency to give sympathetic softball coverage to you know, people who represent their ideological and partisan uh, loyalties and affiliations. And so, you know, so we're talking about sort of CNN, the big networks, uh, MSNBC, you know, anything, you know, anything that's not explicitly right wing media has basically sort of lumped into that. Uh, and you probably have uh, no. I mean, I mean the, the big, the biggest thing, the biggest thing is CNN. I mean, that's that, that's. I mean, the yeah. the. If there is one thing that has aged the worst throughout all of this, it is well, the, the 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 great Cuomo brothers uh, comedy act right. well, that was airing nightly C- on CNN. C- CNN had the special embarrassment of actually assigning the guy's brother 
to interview him and talk to him, which is just, I mean, everybody knew at the time, but was, I mean, everybody, everybody really knew at the time it was a bad idea. I mean, there were a lot of people who shoved that knowledge to the back of their minds because they liked the feels they got from it. Oh, look at the two brothers talking. But I think everybody knew from a journalistic perspective, this is not the way you do things. This is a bad idea. And boy, did that turn out to, I mean, he's not going to, his brother isn't going to ask him the tough questions. He isn't going to grill him on things. He isn't going to make him answer for, well, what about this decision that went wrong? Uh, It's just not going to happen. So why would you even assign that? Why would you let that happen? I mean, and then he's not going to talk about it now. Like you, you won't even talk about the issue like now because it's his brother, which is well. Uh, no, but he's saying now. Now he's saying, well, it wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate, of course. Like, yeah, it was appropriate before. So you know, it's it's um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in Barone's law. This is from Michael Barone, the uh, well-known political commentator, mm-hmm. sort of horse race politics guy from a couple decades ago. Um, I don't think he's been active recently. But uh, he coined something called Barone's Law, which is all process arguments are insincere, including this one, which I love the fact the ad is including <laughs> this one. <laughs> so, you know, anytime somebody brings up an argument about how, well, you can't do that because that's not the right procedure, he says the only re- uh, nobody ever objects to the procedure unless they object to the thing that's being done. Yes. And if the thing that's being done is something they like, then they won't object. Then suddenly their procedural objections kind of melt away where they find exceptions or, oh, well, there's a precedent. If you look back that we could do this. You know, so it's the idea that all all arguments about journalistic ethics or legislative procedure, all of that, they all tend to boil down to do I like this thing that's happening or not? Does this serve my immediate partisan or uh, uh, ideological interests or not? And, you know, so the the rules of journalistic ethics of having a guy's brother cover him, those seem to be very flexible and go one way or the other, depending on uh, on what's what's what promotes what, what's good for um, uh, uh, Chris Cuomo and, and or what's not good for Chris, Chris Cuomo at this current moment. So let's get to what you mentioned before, because, Rob, I got to tell you, at, at the heart of of everything I do on this podcast, in my newsletter, in in anything that I've done on on Twitch, the the brand for which I I seek to build is one where I am obsessed with politics, but I it comes with a healthy distrust, if not outright prejudice toward the politician. Like uh, I I think that they are fascinating people in the way that I'm sure. You know, uh, uh, people who travel with the circus are fascinating people, but I don't necessarily <laughs> think that there's somebody that I would want to co-sign on a mortgage with. Uh, you, you, you rip into the concept of politician as savior. Uh, why? Well, you know, I think the most interesting thing happening right now when you look at it is uh, what's going on in Europe, where they just said, you know, that vaccine that we were, you know, delivering very, very, very slowly to people, we're going to stop delivering it at all because maybe there's this chance that you could maybe have blood clots. And it was this, you know, totally um, backwards risk reward calculation. I don't know if, I don't know if you've been following this. Oh yeah, but no, basically no, no. Yeah, because we, of some we have, tiny we, little risk yeah. the vaccine, we're not going to save tens of thousands of lives that that could be saved uh if if we actually deliver it by, by stopping the vaccine, we're going to have tens of thousands of people die. It's, it's insane. And here you have, you know, these European countries which are the poster child for big government, for a big generous welfare state that's supposed to provide for you. 
And uh, there's a quote attributed to Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to use it. He attributed it to Thomas Jefferson. I, I think it's it's pretty unclear whether Jefferson ever said it. Yeah. But it's the sort of thing he, he would probably have said. So it's six. And that quote is, um, a government big enough to give you everything you want is big, also big enough to take everything you have. Yeah. Well, I think there's an agenda an addendum we need to put to that, which is a government big enough to give you everything you want sometimes just can't be bothered, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the, this idea of a benevolent government that's going to provide you with all the things in life, sometimes they are going to just make bad decisions. And 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 I mean, this is just a totally indefensible, irrational decision that Europe, the European Union is making and the Germans of the European Union that they're making about vaccines. Is it, and But the thing is, because everybody's depending on, oh, the government's going to distribute this vaccine to us, then they're all, you know, you're all basically screwed because some bureaucrats got overly cautious and made a bad decision. And it shows the, the fallacy of relying on government to provide for you and to make your life better and to, uh, to protect you even from a pandemic. Now, I, th- I think there's a legitimate role for government in a pandemic, but this sort of debacle in Europe shows you that even in a pandemic, even when they have legitimate powers, even when we're looking for them to provide these things, sometimes they're going to mess it up. And that should give us a healthy suspicion of too much power going to the government. Now, one of my favorite headlines of an article I ever wrote uh, was uh, I wrote it. I said, they're all the title, the title was they're all a bunch of wieners. So this was during the <laughs> Anthony Wiener thing, right? Ah, gotcha. Remember? Yes, <laughs> of course. Right? And so I basically, they're all a bunch of weeders that yeah. Anthony Weeder is not, you know, he's, he's the spectacular example that, you know, he got caught. And let's, uh, and let's, sexting. let's, yeah, let's, 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 let, let, uh, real quick for, for all the, uh, I know, I know we have, we have, we have a few uh, uh, college students that might've been even too young considering that yes, happened right, so many right. years ago. They, but, they were too young to be uh, uh, given the details of the, what happened because basically, you know, it's like five years or so ago uh this is a po- new york politician no, that was that was that was that was the second wave was five years ago uh, <laughs> yeah, i think right. i think we're we're, we're we're pushing eight or nine on on the first dm but, fail but basically yeah. this is a guy who was spending his time compulsively sexting with with like 22 year old girls college girls and uh while being married and having a child and and all that sort of thing and he was a prominent politician who's you know being groomed to run for mayor of new york uh, and he was caught sexting with these young women and got got caught, apologized, swore it off, and then kept doing it and got caught a second time. So uh, there's this sort of this compulsive uh, bad behavior by this guy. And my point that I made back then was he's not that different from all the rest of the politicians. And, you know, same thing with Donald Trump. You know, People say, oh, don't normalize Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, what if Donald Trump is actually kind of normal for politicians that, you know, he's thin skinned and he's impulsive and he's uh, uh, vain and he's ambitious and all these things you can think of. These are fairly normal characteristics for a politician. We should expect them out of politicians and we should not be lured by the idea that, oh, if we just voted for the right person, we'd, we, you know, every, the Oh, we could avoid all these problems. You need to have a system that keeps the politicians in check, that keeps them with limited powers, and that keeps them from, uh, and keeps them accountable, so that you're not. Dep- and also, you need to build up civil society. You need to build up people's private ability to deal with their own problems, rather than relying on government to do everything for them. So that when you have rotten people who get into office as politicians, 
it won't cause that much damage. You mean you should be, yeah, this is what the founders did. They created a system that was based on the idea that yes, politicians are likely to end up being rotten people a fair bit of the time. So we're not going, we're gonna have a system that doesn't depend on having angels being elected, uh, having perfect people being elected. Well, somebody described it once as a system designed by geniuses so it could be run by idiots. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's sort of what we should be shooting for in, in our political system is, is one where the government being run by stupid or dishonest or un, unethical people shouldn't destroy uh, that much of our lives because we're not depending on it that much. All right. Well, first, uh, uh, get ready for a, a revelation this year, 2021. <laughs> Marks the 10-year anniversary of the initial Wiener scandal. He retired. Oh, no. He retired from Congress uh, on June 16th, 2021. So I got to okay. mark that into my calendar so we can do. 2011. Or 2011. Sorry, so we can do the 10-year retrospective on that. But <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I think what you pointed out was something very, very interesting in terms of comparing the AstraZeneca situation in Europe versus where we are in our modern American politics. Because, like you said before. What's happening in Europe were a bunch of bureaucrats for whom are likely nameless to the Italians, Germans, Spaniards, right. and French that are now going to not be able to get this vaccine for a w days, a week, multiple weeks. Uh, uh, and that's before you price in whatever lingering mistrust is going to be in there because they pulled it out for a statistically uh, uh, irrelevant uh, uh, reason. What we have here is, at least in terms of the Cuomo situation, is is true, you know, idol worship. It, it is it is true. We need to have our Godzilla to fight their King Kong when when it comes to you know. Oh well, I I think Trump is so distasteful in general. I think he is being an incompetent when it comes to the uh, uh, pandemic. He's talking about churches and Easter and and we need to to have the economy come back. Uh, he's yelling at reporters when he should be talking about, you know, uh, uh, infection rates and stuff like that. And so it's not enough that we say, oh, good, calm on this side. Now it's got to it's got to be be raised up. I, I almost feel like this is a, a an extension of partisanship that if we see somebody else being happy or mad on the other side, we feel like, like in some tribal instinct that we need to be inverse happy or, or mad. And that the, the, the people that uh, I think have benefited are these, you know, uh, politicians that understand, no, I'm going to ride this wave. If what you want is the, the, the anti-Trump guy, then Cuomo was there. And, and look, he, he, he might be in the Biden administration, by now already, if it weren't for the fact that some of these sexual assault things started coming out, because that's when they started tumbling out of the woodwork. Yeah, one of the great details that came out about Cuomo is that he made this, uh, they made a decision to cover up the number of deaths in nursing homes, as you know, because this is a direct result of his policy. He said, send these people with COVID back to the nursing homes, and then suddenly COVID spreading through the nursing homes among the most vulnerable population. Yeah. Deaths are soaring. They made a decision to take out the numbers from a report and, and basically cover that up. And that happened like four days before he started work on a book about his great leadership during the pandemic. So it just shows how how blatant and flagrant this was. Uh, but uh, 
yeah, this, this idea of people being so invested in politics, uh, they say politics is the worst team sport, uh, that I think people have sort of built their identities around it. You know, the future is actually showed to us not on the left, but on the right by a, a young fellow named Madison Cawthorn. And he's this Republican sort of MAGA type of Republican who got yeah. elected to Congress. And when he announced his staff, you know, his congressional staff, he basically said, I don't really have a policy staff. All I have is a comms staff. You know, comms means communications. Yeah. And I thought, that's it. That's showing us the future of politics, which is policy doesn't matter. Now, you know, you're a freshman Republican. You're a freshman congressman. You're not going to have a big impact on, on policy. But still, the idea that policy doesn't matter at all, that you're not even going to bother thinking about it or having any staff devoted to it, that all that matters is I'm out on Twitter. I'm on cable TV. I'm I'm. I'm sending messages out there, but I'm not actually doing anything. And that sort of substitution of posturing for actual policy or for, act for actually governing is very much in the spirit of, of, of the age. And I think it comes from the fact that people have looked to politics to fill a gap. It, it, politics has become entertainment. It's become pop culture. It has become in some ways a substitute for religion or for whatever other values that people people have in their lives that they they ought to be spending most of their time on. You, know, you ought to be spending your time with your family, with your neighbors, uh, uh, with, you know, your, if you're religious, with your church, if you're not with with other interests, interests that you have, uh, you should be devoting your time and effort and energy to your work and to all these other things that make so much more difference to your immediate life than, you know, who's gotten elected or who, it's not even who's gotten elected, so much these times it's who said something offensive on Twitter, right? It's <laughs> five minutes ago. And people are spending way too much time of their time and energy on that and not enough on the things that actually matter to their lives. And like I said, you know, we should be spending more time building up our civil society, building up our, our friendships and our organizations and all the things that are going on outside of government, making that strong and robust and able to deal you know, you could deal with the pandemic, something like a pandemic, much better if you've got strong friend and family relationships, and you know you've got that infrastructure built up. Um, I mean, I help. I was able to help get my parents through the pandemic by going out and doing stuff for them because uh, they're in the highest risk group. Uh, and I, you know, I could do that because I'm here for them. I'm, you know, we have those relationships instead of devote devoting so much of your your energy to. You know, how can I get outraged about politics today? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's one of the uh, 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 most fascinating things in my life, mostly because I feel like I was on this corner before in in loving horse race politics. I just didn't know people took it so seriously. Like, I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm 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 the guy. Like I got season tickets. Like I'm here every year. Like uh, yeah. I, you know, when 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 these bleachers were empty, I was I was looking for somebody to start a conversation about some of these races. Uh, but I, I didn't know people were going to start stabbing. Well, no, I, I I just didn't know people were going to start stabbing each other in the parking lot. Like like <laughs> I thought we could all just show up and watch the game. Uh, but but I I, th I think you're right that part of it is there is an inherent insincerity to politics there is an inherent mm -hmm. insincerity to uh the way i put it on this show is the 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 game of politics is on a predetermined date uh, where people are going to go into a booth and we're going to see how many people press your button and how many people press my button and that's it 
That's the actual game. That's the only thing that they are playing for. Everything else, the issues, issues are important, you know, but the campaign is how to motivate as many people as possible to get into the booth and press the button of, of for you and not your opponent. And, and that's and that's it, which means you're going to have elements of uh, of fabrication, of 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 hyperbole, of uh, uh you know, and, and some of it can be artful, some of it can be a dull, blunt weapon, and we've seen various, you know, issues of all of that over the last, you know, ten years. But the one thing that that it just baffles me is when we look to find heroes in some of these people, and and again, it's like uh, there's there's a lot you can you can say that's charisma, maybe even that's leadership on some level, but like, yeah. but but purity. Like uh, a role model? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I feel like a little bit to, to change your analogy from you know. I think you said sort of a baseball analogy more than uh, I, I would say it's it's more like you have a bunch of people who come in who think professional wrestling is real. Right? Yeah, because because a lot of politics is a lot like professional wrestling. It's all you know. You build up an image and you try to you know you have somebody who's the heel and somebody who's the face. And you know, uh, Jonathan, I, I never followed professional wrestling. It was you know, I'm, I'm, it's too lowbrow for my taste. But Jonathan sure. last at the Bulwark uh, likes to build up these elaborate analogies to professional wrestling. Because there, and there's a certain, you know, it's because you have this incredible drama, much of which is staged and fake, and there's really something else going on beside the scenes. And in professional wrestling, you know, your average professional wrestling fan who's over the age of 12 knows that it's not real. No, on some level they know yes. that okay, we know we know this is just no, entertainment. No, we I'm, know I'm, that I am I am uh, Vince uh, McMahon has staged this for us, but yeah. Uh, I'm I'm I I am a pro wrestling fan. I will say this. Uh, uh, my my favorite way to describe professional wrestling is that it is performers pretending they are a fight. They are in a fight, and it is a crowd <laughs> pretending they are a crowd at a fight. Like everybody, <laughs> you know, unless you are unless you are young and you are 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 being you know you are getting the most pure immersive version of this right, immersive right. theater. You are pretending that these people are actually doing this, which is the fun of it, which is the binding right. agent to it. Right. So, but the thing is that, like I said, most most people over the age of twelve who, yeah. who follow professional wrestling, they know that that's that, that pretend they're suspending disbelief on some level. Uh, and I feel like our politics today is a bunch of people came in who think professional wrestling is real. Uh, and who think, you know, Donald Trump made a pretty lateral move from, you know, being showing WWE up WWE Hall of Famer. Events. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, to coming to coming into politics and taking the exact same approach. And so it's like people who actually invest this with all the sincerity of no, no, this guy really is the hero. This is the heel. This is the face. And they change, you know, depending on which side you are, you think one guy is the villain versus the other guy. And I try, don't try ask me to come up with examples of this. I'm not that familiar with the professional wrestling world, That's but fine. you know, you get the idea. Uh, well, uh, let, let me, let me, let me, let me ask you this then, because this is what I get when I, when I uh, uh, make similar points. And that is it, it must be nice to be somebody who is so disconnected from the world that is unaffected by politics that that you can have such a callous attitude toward uh, uh, these these issues and these these politicians that uh, there are are communities for which are are dependent on these decisions that will be ruined if the wrong person gets into office. So yes, maybe it is too serious, but you'd rather err on the side of too serious when you're talking about real 
issues that that apparently dilettantes in the chattering class like us are 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 are, are protected from. Well, so when I hear that argument, I think, oh yeah, I know who wrote that argument to put that into somebody's head and into their mouth, <laughs> and I know, I know, and I know why they were writing that. You know, there's a, there's a scene um, now to switch from a very different example from uh, professional wrestling. There's a movie called The Devil Wears Prada, which sure, is yeah, sort of based on this. You know, you have this this uh, high fashion sort of maven based on uh, the Anna, Anna Winter, Pope, yeah, Anna Winter. And uh, nuclear winter, as they call her. Yeah. Uh, and, and and they have the young intern who affects to be to not care about fashion. And Anna, the Anna Winter character gives her this little speech about, oh, you don't care about fashion. That sweater you're wearing that you picked out of the bargain bin, that's a specific color. It's this color called cerulean blue. And you know she traces back all the ways in which that color you're wearing was chosen by the people standing in this room three years ago as the latest fashion. Yeah. And, you know, you think you're outside of you don't that that you don't you you just you wear this not thinking about it, but you don't know what went behind the scenes to make that. So when you hear the argument about, oh, well, you, Mr. Inside the Beltway guy, you must be above it all. You know, it's nice, must be nice to be above it all. It's like I know who wrote that argument and put it in your head. And I know why they were trying what they were trying to accomplish politically by doing that. Yeah. Now, to, you know, so <laughs> it's a little bit like you're being taken in by something without realizing where it came from. Now, to take the thing head on, though, is that actually those of us who take that attitude towards this attitude towards politics, I think, are more in contact with what's going on because we know what's fake. And, yes. you know, and and we know that a lot of the issues you're being spun up as, as like, oh, well, you have to vote for this person or else we'll have socialism and we'll be just like Venezuela we know how fake a lot of those arguments are. Yeah. And we know how selective they are. Like, you know, a lot of them are look at the bad thing being done by the person over there on the other side that I can build up as a horrible bad thing. So you won't look at the bad stuff being done by my person over here. Yeah. You know, so look, look at me building up Donald Trump as a villain. So you won't look at Andrew Cuomo, all the, all the rotten stuff Andrew Cuomo was doing that is making things worse. So it's more in contact to have a certain, those who are cynical about the sort of fake dramas of politics, I think are more in touch with what's going on because we realize how much of this is manipulated and how much is fake. And also the people who say, well, what about the real issues that affect people? Well, I think that's a great question because, you know, the way I view it as the game of politics is what is government going to do? What is it not going to do? That's the real game. And the elections are a means to that. Yeah. But so much of what goes on around elections is people picking fake issues to manipulate, to make an election go one way or the other, uh, you know, in their favor or against them and ignoring the real issues and the real policies. Uh, And, uh, you know, so, for example, you know, I mean, great example is that the Republicans now care about the federal debt again. (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you know, like clockwork, you know, their, yeah. their party's not in power and now they care about the federal debt, but they ran up, you know, trillions of extra debt, uh, even while the economy was growing, while we were out coming out, we were out of a recession, the economy was growing, we didn't have a, um, a pandemic hitting, they had three, two, three years in which they could have exercised some very minimal, modest level of control and left us with more money when we really needed it. They didn't do any of that because they were focused on all the things that have they, they get people spun up, all the culture war issues. Yeah. And, you know, Donald Trump, his great in, um, innovation politically is typically a politician has the attitude of, well, I don't want to get in trouble very often because every time I get in trouble, 
my I have to rally people to my defense. And every time I do that, I'm using up some of my political capital. And eventually if I do it too, if I go to the well too often, you know, people won't want to come defend me. Well, his idea was, no, no, no. I'm going to get in trouble constantly. Yeah. I will constantly be calling upon my supporters to come say, well, what Donald Trump was really saying was and explain away and excuse. And, oh, but what about what this other, you know, come up with all the different arguments. I'm going to constantly have people rallying to my defense. And what will happen is they'll do it so often they'll get used to it. It will become a hobby for them. It will become part of their personal identity. I am a person who goes around defending Donald Trump. Yeah. And so they'll become even more, they'll become so much more committed to defending me on every little thing I do if I'm in trouble constantly and constantly picking a petty fight. And I think he got that out of tabloid journalism and Twitter and social media because that's how things work there, right? On social media, people are always picking constant petty, uh, meaningless little semantic. I, I think. Fights I think also it was it, it's it's part of the grievance, like the 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 mm -hmm. central uh, tenant of a lot of AM radio and certainly Fox News is this kind of like original sin of grievance that like the yes. the, the media is against us, right? And yeah. that like like why does the, the all the all the all the Democrats get the softball questions and and the Republicans get the hardball questions. Why is it right. when there's a Republican president, he's always bowing and curtsying and figuring out a way that he can play nice? And and Donald Trump was was the like the 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 naked reverse of that of like no more Mister Knight. Now everything that you would wish the that you wished the Bushes would have said and you wished Reagan would have even gone further on like bah, that's it. Now now it is yeah. it, it's like when, when you let loose the Ghostbusters uh, uh, ghost tank <laughs> just ravaging through uh, uh, the, the the media landscape. Right, right. Well, <clears throat> you know, there's an old study, uh, old uh, like sociological study. Uh, from, I say old, probably from five, ten years ago, but it's very illuminating. And these these people did this, uh, broke things down. They said uh, there are different kinds of cultures, depending on what it is that gives you status and importance and worth in that culture. Yeah. So it says there used to be a culture of honor, where it's your honor that was what gave you uh, status and worth in a society. So things sort of Japanese Bushido kind of culture. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, the West in the up through the Renaissance. Then they said that then there was a culture of dignity where it is your personal dignity. And the great thing about your personal dignity is it's less dependent on what other people think about you. So you can, you know, uh, 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 you know Frederick Douglass as a slave can still have dignity. Yeah. Because it's about your sense of your own self-worth and your sense of your self-restraint and your moral character. He says, then what we had, we had the honor culture, we had a dignity culture, and now we have a victimhood culture. And where what gives you status and worth and meaning to your life is that you are a victim of something. And you see that on the left. And you know, it used to be people on the right would trot out this study and say, oh, see, this explains the left. Yeah. Well, I think we're now seeing what happens when that culture of victimhood comes to the right as well. That, you know, we are the forgotten people as the elites of Washington, D.C. look down on us, et, et cetera. You know, this this grievance culture you see coming 24-7 from Fox, from uh, Tucker Carlson. That's All these fake anti-elitists who went to prep school, you know, who are. Who well, are Fox Jesus. Yeah. I mean, but, but that's that, that's that's as old as Nixon. Right. That That's that's the silent majority. Right. Like that. There's 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 always been an element of uh, of of. The, the the liberals control the media and mm -hmm. and and so therefore 
we can't look in the mirror and see ourselves. Whenever we look in the mirror, the mirror right, being right. the media, uh, we see this funhouse uh, d- distortion. So I do think it's been there for a while, but I mean, this this kind of gets to uh, another kind of larger thing about po- uh, politics, and I've already kept you too long, so I'll, I'll go out on this, and that is the, I don't think that politicians program the people. I think that the greatest mm-hmm. politicians understand the wave and they ride it correctly because if politicians could program the people, they would do it in in a lot different ways than they do now. They're, they're finding popular swells of things that are there and they are giving voice to them. They are animating them. They are maybe coalescing people based on them. But Cuomo succeeded because somebody that liberals wanted normalcy and they wanted rock solid proof that Donald Trump was doing bad specifically in an election year. Donald Trump was uh, 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 the anti-Hillary Clinton because I can't believe we would go with somebody so corrupt and so thoroughly reviled even by elements of her own party that, that yes, even if it's us letting the dog drive, let's let the dog drive for four <laughs> years because how bad can it be? Like there, there's, there, there are these larger, if not on some levels, ancient kind of threads that the most highly functional politicians can take advantage of. That doesn't make them good people. It might make them keen judges of character. Uh, no, I absolutely agree that the 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 people the people program and reward. I mean, it's, it's a it's a competitive market. You know, the yeah. way I think about it is, it's a competitive market. And if there's demand for something, somebody will come along and take advantage of that and and exploit that demand and rise politically. And I, I think with Donald Trump, the thing I saw was that I think a lot of people on the right wanted permission to be bad. You know, we're tired of trying to be good. We're trying. We're tired of trying to. You know, so when they say we're racists, we're tired of trying to say, well, no, we're not really racist. So let me patiently explain it to you. Yeah. We want to be mean and nasty back to them. We yeah. want to, you know, just throw out all the rules. Who cares about decorum? Who cares about any of the stuff we used to say about character? We want permission to be just as bad as the as we imagine the other guy is. And he he gave them permission to be bad. And it was a, a powerful sort of compelling psychological uh, uh, appeal. But uh, unfortunately, I think has, you know, does a lot of bad things to our political discussion and debate. Well, I'll tell you what, this was a great political discussion and uh, uh, not really a debate, but certainly a, a great time. Uh, I would like to thank our guest today, uh, Rob Trzinski, of course, a writer for The Bulwark, and you can find his newsletter, The Trzinski Letter, at trzinskiletter.com. We'll have that linked in the show notes. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that will wrap it up for us today on the way out. Let me get you some news. I'm leaving too soon. I'm leaving too soon. This just in from the San Francisco Chronicle. Oakland launches one of the largest guaranteed income programs in the country. 600 residents will receive $500 a month for at least 18 months with no strings attached, says Mayor Libby Schaff. This to combat increasing poverty that has come uh, not only in the wake of just life, (laughs) uh, but also specifically the pandemic. All right. 
that will be it for us on this episode. If you would like to send us an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com is where you send it. We read your emails on Friday's episode. And let me tell you this about Friday's episode. It's going to include me reacting to foreign tax returns. I've received foreign tax returns. I am going to peruse foreign tax returns and I will react to them on Friday's episode. If you would like to say thank you to our guest, Rob Trzinski, you're going to go to px3guest.com. Just that simple, right there. px3guest.com. It's going to lead you right to his Twitter. Go support him. The best way that we can build a great reputation amongst guests in this field is to have people react to their appearance. If you like them, let them know. I mean, it's just a nice thing to do. You can find our Twitter, px3tweets.com. Our Twitch is at px3live.com. Streams are going to be spotty while I move, but trust me, they are going to be exponentially awesome as soon as I touch down in Austin. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. You can find the website for this podcast at px3podcast.com. And, of course, you can support us in a lot of different ways. If you want to just give us a one-time donation, our PayPal is paypal.me slash payjury. Our cash app is px3cash. And our Venmo is justin-young-20. And let's see. It always makes me... Smile when somebody gives me $1 on Venmo, and that $1 buckaroo is Walter E., who just wrote, Dalla Holla. <laughs> it's so stupid, but I love it so much. And uh, you can send us, e uh, send us mail at P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. I, I don't know if that will remain our address and we'll just forward it or uh, something else. But uh, that, that's the place where you can send stuff. Right and, of course, you can go get our bonus coverage at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 level gets you the bonus podcast, but the $10 level... Well, that gets you your name at the end of the show. We call them the Titanic $10 tier, but you might know them better as Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, The 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Steve, and Kathy Mac, Zombie Doc D, really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle Aged Mike, Cujo.com, Junkie Calamity Zap, D Laser, Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Cujo, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, appraisers are awesome. Snuffies off Route 44, Charles, Archie, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew, if you would like. To join their ranks, you simply head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And that'll be it for us today. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more 
discuss politics, but this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh. Dog and Pony Show Audio.